Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. And before we get started, I just want to ask all of you to be in prayer for all of those people and families that were affected by the horrible accident that took place in Fort Worth on Thursday. It was an awful thing, and they need our prayers. And that's why, out of an abundance of caution, that we're actually just doing all of our services online this weekend, because we know we're having more winter weather coming in, and we want you to be home, we want you to be safe, and we want you to be warm. And we're glad you're here, because today we're actually starting a brand new series called called Proof. And this series is going to take us all the way through Easter. And the reason why we're doing this series is because we want to strengthen your belief. We want to strengthen your belief in a way that you're willing to share your belief with those around you. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, strengthen my belief. I thought you either believe or you don't believe. Well, that's true. But see, I think a lot of people are like the man in Mark 9. That's when the father took his son to Jesus to be healed. And when he saw Jesus, he said, if you can, would you heal my son? And Jesus says, if I can. He says, all things are possible for those who believe. And so the man says, I believe. But then he says, can you help me with my unbelief? You see, I think all of us are gonna face situations. I think all of us are gonna face difficult circumstances that are gonna challenge our belief. And if we don't have the proof, if we don't believe that Jesus is who he is, we could easily walk away from our faith. That's what a guy by the name of Frank Turek said, and if you don't know who he is, he's a, he's a Christian apologist. He's an author, he uh, has his own radio talk show host, he actually uh, travels around the country and he lectures, and he goes to college campuses and he actually debates uh, atheists, and he tells them why they should believe. And this is what Frank says. He says, the reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. He said the reason why students, the reason why college graduates, the reason why young adults, the reason why senior adults are so easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. They were never given the proof that they could hold on to their faith. And so they might have heard something, they might have saw something, they might have listened to something, and they just easily walked away. So the idea of this series is to give you the proof. Give you the proof so there's nothing that can go on in your life that would make you walk away. And we hope that through this series that maybe some people watching that have walked away are going to hear the proof they need to come back to Jesus. And for those of you that might be watching that you've never actually entered into that relationship, we hope that when you hear what we have to say, that you will start that relationship and believe yourself. We think there's going to be a lot of life change in this series, so make sure you're sharing this, that you're tagging people, that you're bringing people back when we're on campus next week when, when Bill is back uh, doing this series, we want you to be here and bring in people with you because again, we can't wait to see what God is gonna do. Now, when we think about the word believe, we all kind of know what that means. We know why we believe what we believe and that's putting Christianity aside, just really in our everyday life, we know how we believe. We believe based on evidence, right? We believe by what we see, what we hear, but we also believe by how much we trust in the person who's giving us the information. I mean, think about when you were in school and your teacher stood up in front of the class and said that um, eight times eight is 64. 
You just believed it, right? I mean, you didn't go to home and, and get eight rows of eight different items and started counting to make sure it was correct. You believed because you trusted his teacher. Well, we believe based on what we see, what we hear, what we read, if we trust the person who's giving us that information. Well, what you need to understand, it's the same in Christianity that Christianity isn't about just blind faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. It says, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for and a proof of things not seen. See, our faith is based on proof and evidence. There's a certainty. We're just not blindly walking into our faith. It's not saying that we just hope it happens. Our hope is based on truth. It's based on evidence. And the author of Hebrews, when he was writing that, he was actually writing to a group of, of Christians who were thinking about walking away. First century Christians were the most persecuted people on the planet, and they were looking around at their circumstances, and they were thinking, is this worth it? Is this really worth it to go through what we're doing? And so the author says, of course it's worth it. He says, you need to look back at all the great men and women of the Old Testament, these great men, men and women of faith who, who held on to their belief, even though they never saw the promise. And the promise, what they were talking about, was the promise that God made to Abraham when he said that he was going to make him the father of a great nation, and through him he was going to bless the entire world. Well, they lived their whole life believing in that promise, and they never saw it. But they held on to that belief. They held on to that. And he's saying, you have seen the promise. God kept his promise. He sent his son. Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. You're on the other side of the cross. You need to hold on to that belief. We have the evidence. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what that evidence is that shows that Jesus is who he says he is. And to do that, we're going to be looking at the, the Gospel of John. Now, remember, in uh, the Bible, we have four Gospels that give account of Jesus' life of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when John gets around to writing his Gospel, actually, all the other writers have died. Actually, all the other people that were close to Jesus, that walked to Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that uh, were eyewitnesses of, of what Jesus did and said, they had all passed away. And so when John gets a, around to writing his Gospel, and we actually don't think he wrote it, we think he dictated it because of the, the Greek that it was written in. But when he wrote his gospel, he wrote it in a different way. He wrote it for a purpose. And at the end of his gospel, he tells us why he actually wrote uh, this gospel, this account of the life of Jesus. And this is what he says in John 20, verse 30. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, I want you to remember that word signs because we're going to come back and talk about it. And the book that he's talking about is actually not the Bible. It's the, the book that he's writing about the life of Jesus. And there's many theologians who believe that he only wrote about certain things because we couldn't put all of what Jesus did into one book. But John is saying, I'm not the only one who saw this. I'm not the only one who's experienced this. There were other disciples there. But because of what I experienced, this is what happened. And he says, these are written that you may believe. He's saying, what happened, what I saw, what I experienced caused me to believe that Jesus is who he is. And I hope that because when you read about what I experienced and what I went through, that it's going to cause you to believe. John was writing this because he wanted us to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And he wanted you to do that because believing that you may have life in his name. And he's saying that Jesus changed my life. And I want him to change yours. And so I'm going to write about these signs and, and what we find in the, in the Gospel of John that he wrote seven signs. And these are the signs that 
we're going to talk about each week to, to take us through Easter. And he said, in these signs is where I knew that Jesus was who he said he was. And when we talk about signs, we talk about the, some of the Bible uh, translations say miraculous signs, or some even call them miracles. And, and when we talk about a miracle, we're talking about something that only God could do. And I think some of us have, have experienced those. We call them uh, God things, that when something happens and you know that the only way that this could happen is that God stepped in. Uh, Bill talks about the God things that happened here at the Met, of how we actually got from um, uh, South Lake uh, Carroll High School to actually where we are now, that actually when they were in South Lake High School, that uh, they had to put a promissory note down, and they had to put some earnest money down to, to get the food store. And it was more money than they actually had, and they didn't know where they were going to get it. And here, the, the deadline was coming up, and that Sunday before the deadline, a couple walked in for the very first time and gave just enough money to actually pay this earnest so they could get the building. I mean, it was a God thing. These people had never been there before, and they came in and had enough money to be able to put it down. And so we've experienced these God things. I've actually experienced a God thing that right after Cole and I got married, uh, I was kind of lazing around the house. I was really tired, actually a little bit more lazy and tired than I normally am. But I was, I was lazing around the house and, and uh, Cole asked if I was okay. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I just don't really feel that great. And she looked at me and she saw my neck and my neck was pulsating. And so she kind of came over and she took uh, uh, my, my heart rate and my resting heart rate was over 160. That was what, what, what it was, and we knew that there was something wrong, so we went to the doctor, and I was diagnosed with Graves' disease, and uh, it doesn't usually uh, happen in men, but it, it's, it's pretty rare, but it does, and so I had Graves' disease, and it was basically kind of what is called hyperthyroid. Your, your thyroid is just going um, crazy, and it's just running all the time, and, and it's like you're constantly exercising, which is actually kind of good because you can eat the, all the junk food you want and all the ice cream, and your weight just keeps falling off, but uh, your body can't sustain it. And, and, uh, and actually, like, if I would go up some stairs, that I'd feel like I ran a marathon. I mean, it was just my body was racing so much. So I had a lot of people praying for me. I had a lot of people that were, were wanting, you know, this to, to get cleared up. Well, we went to the doctor, and they said the only way that uh, we were going to be able to, to basically help me out is they actually have to remove the thyroid. And how they do that is they blow it up. I mean, literally, they blow it up. They, you have to become radioactive, okay? And they give you this uh, thing to blow up your thyroid. And uh, it was pretty funny when they were talking to us. We were getting kind of weirded out because they said, after I get this, that I'm, I will be radioactive. And so Cole and I can't sleep in the bed, same bed for a while. In fact, that, that uh, I have to burn the sheets that I was sleeping in, and, and I can only eat with plastic uh, forks and, and paper plates, and we have to throw that away. And I'm thinking, man, after this procedure, can I? I even ride in the car. She had to strap me to the roof <laughs> to get home. But, but uh, we knew that uh, you know this is what we had to do. And so the doctor took a couple of her tests before he was going to do the procedure. And when he came back into the office, he said, "You know what? We're not going to do it today." And I was like, "What's going on?" And he said, "I don't know how to tell you this, but it looks like it's healing itself." It looks like it's reversing. He goes, I, I can't explain it. And I'm going, well, I can explain it. It's a God thing. And uh, it actually did that, that it reversed itself. And, and I haven't had any problems ever since. But I was also kind of guilty at times because I'm thinking, you know, they can blow up my thyroid and I can be fine. I mean, like, God, why did you do this miracle here? There's so many other people that need miracles. But what we find out in this study 
is that when John is writing about these signs, these miracles, he uses the Greek word simeon. And what that means is the fact that everything God does is has spiritual meaning. Whether he does it or doesn't, it all has a spiritual meaning. And that's what we're going to see uh, in this series is the spiritual meaning. And the whole meaning is for us to see that Jesus is who he says he is. And so we're going to be looking at these seven signs. And today I'm going to talk to you about the first sign. And the first sign is actually a sign that I think uh, all of you have heard about. You might not know the story, but you've, you've heard this. It's when Jesus turned water into wine. Okay, we've all heard that story. In fact, I have a funny story about that. There was this uh, priest who was driving down the road. And he was kind of weaving in and out, and he passed a, a police car. And, uh, and so the police pulled him over and said, hey, is everything okay? And he's going, oh, everything's fine, officer. I'm, I'm great. I'm great. And he goes, well, you were kind of weaving out. Have you been drinking anything? And he says, no, I haven't been drinking at all. I'm fine. And the policeman looked, and he saw a cup, and he said, well, what, what's that? And he goes, Oh, no, that's just water. I mean, that's nothing. And he goes, well, why don't you let me see it? So, we, so the, priest, the priest takes it and he hands it to the policeman and says, here, it's just water. And so the, the, priest, the policeman looks at it and kind of smells it and he says, <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's not water. He goes, that's wine. And so the priest looks at the police officer and says, hallelujah, Jesus did it again. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny. I need some thumbs up for that one. But anyway, we are going to be talking about when Jesus turned water into wine. And, uh, and to do that, uh, open up your Bibles to John 2, and that's where we're going to see the story. And this is what it says. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, remember when you read the word therefore in your Bible? You have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? And what that's telling you is to look what it said in the previous chapter so you know what you were supposed to, how this all fits in. Well, when John is saying on the third day, what he's saying is this is a continuation of something that took place before. And so we need to look back into John chapter one to find out what's going on. And what we see is this is actually when Jesus began his earthly ministry. This is when he basically stepped on the stage to do his earthly ministry. Remember John the Baptist, he was the one who went before Jesus. And he was the one that was telling everybody to be ready for Jesus. And one day John sees Jesus walking. He says, there he is. There he is, everybody. That's the guy I've been telling you about. That's the Lamb of God, the one who's coming to take away the sins of the world. He's the one we need to follow. Well, what we see is on that day, people started following him. They started following him, and on that next day, more followers started coming, and more disciples of, of followers of Jesus, and he takes them to Galilee. And so this is where all of it's going, and it's a continuation of Jesus starting his ministry, his earthly ministry. And so they come to Galilee, and it says that Jesus' mother was there. And so what we realize is the fact that this wedding that they're at has to be somebody they know, that uh, they've been invited, so it, we don't know, you know who they were, but we realize they must be friends of some kind. But what we also see is that Jesus' mother was more than just a guest, that she was actually helping out. We don't know in what way, with just hospitality, or, or she was actually catering, uh, helping them with the food, but we know that she had more than just the role of being a guest. And it says, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. Now, what you need to realize is that weddings back in those times were these huge events, not that they aren't huge now, because I know there's a lot of people put on big old weddings, but think about what you went in to, to, to throw a huge wedding. Well, this is done over several days, so think about if you had to do this for, every, for a few days, uh, drive you crazy, but this is a big event 
This is a big event that people come and, and be a, uh, a part of this. And then it says this in, in verse 3. It says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is a huge faux pas. I mean, this is, this is more than a faux pas. This is, this is not good because this is really going to mar this family going forward because of what everybody's going to think. Here you are. You brought everybody in. You're, you're, you're the one providing the hospitality for everybody, and you have nothing to give them. I mean, think about if you were throwing a, a wedding and all the guests came, and all of a sudden you go, I'm sorry, uh, there's no more cake or there's no more punch. People are going to be looking at you and go, were you not ready for this? Well, this is a huge uh, thing for these people, and so... So uh, Jesus' mother knows that this is a huge problem. But what does she do? She immediately goes to Jesus. Now, I'm telling you this. If you don't hear anything else in this message, you need to understand that. Whenever we have a problem, the first person we need to go to is Jesus. We don't need to try to figure it out on our own. We don't need to to see what we can do and, and use Jesus as a last resort. We need to go to Jesus first because everything is better when you put it in his hands. And she realizes that. She realizes, I'm gonna give it to Jesus. Now, notice what else she does. She doesn't tell him, okay, this is what you need to do and this is need, uh, how you need to do it. She puts it in his hands. She realizes he's gonna do with it with whatever he thinks is the best thing to do. And that's also what we need to do. We need to give it to Jesus and trust that he will do the right thing. Now, this is how Jesus answers her, and I'm just going to tell you this for a few teenagers, if you're watching this, if your mom asks you to do something, this might not be the best way to respond to her, okay? This might not be the best way, but this is what Jesus did. He said, woman, woman, why do you involve me? I don't think mom would actually appreciate that. But actually, that's not how uh, it was done. Actually, the word woman that he's talking about there is a term of respect, it's uh, be like calling her my lady or ma'am. It was a term of respect. There's a lot of theologians who believe that when Jesus um, addressed his mother as woman back then, as, as my lady, as, as ma'am, he was actually showing her that the relationship between her and him was changing, that it wasn't about her looking at Jesus as uh, uh, her son anymore. It was about her looking at Jesus as her savior, and that's what she needed to start looking at. So Jesus is setting this up. And he's saying, why do you involve me? And he said, my hour has not yet come. And when we talk about hour, usually that is in reference to when he was going to die. But what Jesus was actually letting her know is the fact that I'm not here at your beck and call. I'm here to do my father's will. And it's my father who tells me what to do. And it's what my father that is going to know when I will reveal myself. It's not when you. But what we see is the fact that Jesus actually does perform this miracle. But what we know now that it was under the guidance of his heavenly father. And so what Mary says, he says to the servants, she says, do whatever he tells you. Do what he does. And that's what I'm saying is the fact that our job is not to tell Jesus what to do. Our job is to be obedient to what Jesus wants us to do. And then it says um, that nearby, six stone water jars, the kind used uh, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding uh, from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this is where we get to the spiritual understanding of this sign. I, I, when I was kind of researching this and kind of looking at it, I'm thinking, man, when you look at all the other signs that happen, this kind of 
pales in comparison. I mean, it's not like anybody was being raised from the dead. It wasn't like Jesus was walking on water. It wasn't like he was feeding thousands upon thousands of people. It wasn't like he was healing somebody. He was basically turning water into wine so people could have a party, right? And so you're wondering, why was this in there? Why would, why would John use this one as a sign that had him believe that Jesus was who he is? But what we see in this sign is that Jesus was telling us and telling the world that he was coming for something new. And see, these jars that, that rep represented the ceremony of washing, these were the jars that represented the Old Covenant. Remember in the Old uh, uh, Testament that God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And it was a covenant that was based on rules and regulations, that you obey these rules, you do what I tell you to do, and that's how you become right with God. And as long as you do these things, everything's okay. And if you don't do these things, then we're not okay. So it's all based on rules and regulations. And what Jesus is saying, no, I'm coming to do something new. It's now going to be based on, uh, it's now going to be based on a relationship, that I'm the one who is going to pay the price for all of these rules and regulations, and that through that relationship with me, you're now right with God. Because he's using these ceremony jars, because have you ever thought about the fact that what was empty? What did they run out of? They ran out of wine, right? Well, why didn't Jesus just ask, bring the vessels that were holding the wine? I'll fill them up and we can keep the party going. But why did he use this? Because he was showing us that he was coming for something different. In Mark 2, it says this. It says, you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. And when Jesus was talking about that parable, what he was saying is, I didn't come. I didn't come to, to, to change the old covenant. I didn't come to adapt to the old covenant, to, to make little adjustments to the old covenant. I came to establish a new covenant, a new covenant based on me. It's a relationship. And this whole idea of turning the water into wine was setting this up. Because how do you make wine? You crush the grapes. And what does it say in, in Isaiah 53 that his body was crushed? And what did Jesus do on the night before he went to the cross when he had the, the, the Last Supper, when he, when he did the, the, the Last Supper ceremony with his disciples? He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my body that will be crushed for you. And then he said with the wine, he says, this is my blood that was shed for you that Jesus was going to pay the price, and that's why he was using this. And it was that wine that he was going to, when he turned that water into wine, he was showing that as the example of what he had come to do. And so he tells the servants, he said, fill the jars with water. So what this means is the fact that probably everybody at that, uh, at that uh, feast, everybody there at the wedding feast, they had probably already used these jars to actually cleanse themselves, to make themselves right with God before they partook of any of, of, of what was uh, handed out there. And so he told them to fill these jars, and so they filled them to the brim. Now what this is signifying is the fact that Jesus wasn't adding anything to the water to turn it into wine. And Jesus wasn't, isn't adding anything to us. He is transforming us. The old is gone, the new is here. He was taking this water and transforming it into wine, and that's what he does with us. And we're full. We are complete in them. We are sealed with his spirit when we take that. Second uh, Peter 1.3, it talks about the fact that, that when you have Christ, you are completely full. You have everything you need. I love what Bill always talks about that. He says that the good news about the bad news, the good news is the fact that you have all of Jesus you want. And the bad news is you have all of Jesus you want. And you need to realize that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have all of him. You are full. You are filled. And it's now up to you 
to tap in to Jesus in you. And so that's the, what he was trying to say there. And then he told him after they had filled the water, he said, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. What Jesus was already doing right off the bat, he said, test it. Test what I am doing. Put that out there because the master of the banquet was actually the guy who uh, decided when the wine was going to be served and, and what the order it was going to be in. And what we'll find out later in this text is that what he would do is he would taste the, the wines beforehand and he would set it up and he would always put the best out first and then he would kind of uh, linger it back and, and hoping that as the people drank, they wouldn't notice that the, the other wine wasn't as good as the, what they started with. So he says, take it to him first. Let him test it. Let him approve what I've done. And they said they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. So the servants who had drawn the water knew. And what he was saying is the fact that I haven't tasted this before because I've tasted all that we've, we're going to hand out, and this is new. This is, this, is, this is better than anything I've tasted before. And that's what he ends up saying. He calls to the bridegroom, who's the one who provides the, the wine, and he says to him, everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guest have too much to drink. They don't, won't notice. He said, but you saved the best till now. He realized that what Jesus did was better than anything that had been done before. And that's what he was setting up. He was setting up the fact that what, what he was about to do was better than this old covenant. Because what Jesus was going to do for us on the cross was once and for all. There was no more sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. The best was yet to come. And when you look at weddings back in that first century, this is how they happen. The families get together and they decide if the, if the, the boy and girl are going to be wed. And what they do is they set a dowry. And once they, they agree on this dowry, what they then do is the, the son now can go to the daughter and ask for her hand. And when he does, he actually gives her a cup of wine. And she can either accept it or reject it. And if she accepts the, the glass, that's when they're going to be married. But what he does then, he leaves. He actually leaves and he goes and prepares a place for her. Because she is going to leave her home and she's going to come move into his home. And this is what this story is setting up of what Jesus was doing for us. That God put Jesus as the price being paid so that we could have eternity with him. And by the blood that he shed on the cross, that we have life in him, and that when we accept him, we become the church. We are the bride of Christ. And what did Jesus say in John 14 before he went to the cross to his disciples? He says, I have to leave. And why did he have to leave? To go prepare a place for you. And he said, I would come back. And that's what he does. He comes back and he takes us that have put our faith in him. And he talks about this and John writes about this in Revelation 19, that one day he's going to come back and then he's going to take us to heaven and we will have that wedding feast with the lamb. This is the best is yet to come. And this is what he's talking about this. And this is the symbol of why this sign is so important. And then it says this, it says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory. And when was his glory seen? When he rose from the dead. When he gave his life on the cross, and on that third day he rose from the dead. And when did this take place? On the third day. 
This was all symbolism of what was happening. And then it says, his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. And really when you look at it, what it's saying is, his disciples believed into him. They surrendered unto who he was. They knew he was the son of God and they surrendered their life to him. And that's why John was writing this, because he wants us to surrender. What does a life surrendered look like? Three things that we can take from this narrative that shows what a life of, that is surrendered looks like. First thing is when you surrender your life to him, you recognize his presence in your life. You recognize his presence. Psalm 139 says there's no place that we can go that Jesus isn't there, that God is not there, that he is there. But do we recognize that he's there? Do we recognize that he's there for us? Do we look at that? Romans 8, 38, it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. God is always with us. The thing is, do we recognize that? And Mary was that perfect example. She saw a problem. She knew Jesus was there and she went to him. That when we surrender, then what happens is we're partnering with him. He's a part of everything we do. There's nothing that we don't go through that we're not including him. He wants to be a part of your life. Recognize the presence of God being in your life because he's there with you. Uh, Psalm 37 says, delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What this verse is talking about is the fact that when you enter into the surrender lifestyle, that what you're doing is I trust him, I delight in him, I believe in him, I understand what he wants for me. And then what happens is he gives you the desires of my heart that means I line up with him. And that's what surrendering means. It's understanding that you and him are one and you will do what he wants you to do. The second thing that if you surrendered, you're gonna be participating with him. John 14, 15, it says, Jesus said this. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And in Jesus' brother, James, he said this in James 1. He said, he says, don't just be hearers of what Jesus says. Do what it says. Participate with him. Listen to him. Do what it says. What did Mary say to the servants? He, she said, do what he says. We need to do what, he, what Jesus wants us to do. We need to live a life of obedience. When I was talking to Bill about this, when we were, when we were talking about this series, he said, have you ever uh, thought how interesting this is? We never know when the water actually turned into wine. We don't know it if it was when the, the servants were obedient by filling the jars. We don't know if it happened when the servants were obedient by actually taking the, the wine, uh, the, the water out and, and, and taking it out of the jars. Or we don't know when it, they actually were obedient when they went and took it to the, the master of the banquet. We don't know when. But what we do know is because of the participation that they got to be a part of the blessing. See, when you participate with Jesus and you do what he says, you get to participate in the blessing of what he wants to do in your life. But so much of the blessings that God wants to put in your life, it's, it's counted on the fact that you're obedient to him. I mean, think about this. What does it say in Jeremiah 29? It says, it says for you that, that, that we seek and then we find. What does it say in, in Luke 6? It says, you give and it'll be given unto you. If you're missing the blessings, it's because you haven't taken that step. What does it say in, in Romans 10, 17? It says that faith comes by hearing the word, hearing the word of God. Are you taking the step to make sure that you're in the word all the time? Are you participating with him? See, it's all contingent of that. 
Remember the story when, when Moses brought the, the Israelites out of, uh, out of Egypt and they faced that problem. And what does he do? He parts the Red Sea they go through. But when they were going into the promised land, when did, when did the Jordan part? When they took the step. See, we need to participate with him to receive the blessing. And you need to participate with him to have blessings on your life because God wants to bless you. He wants the best for you. And finally, the third thing that you're going to find that when you surrender your life to him is you have peace. Mary was, again, the perfect example. She put it in Jesus' hand, and she went back to doing what she was doing already. She didn't keep checking on him. She didn't tell him what to do. She trusted him because she had peace that he was going to take care of it. She was a perfect example of Philippians 4. Remember what it says. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Give him your problems. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will be with you. And that's what happens. That when you trust him, when you surrender to him, he gives you his peace. Jesus said that. I go, but I leave you my peace. And my peace happens when you surrender your life to me. Here's the thing that you take from this. The best is yet to come. We need to live our lives by Romans 8, 28. That God brings good to all things for those who love him. It doesn't say that all things are good, but God will bring good from it. You can trust him, and we have the proof. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us. God, we thank you for sending us your son. And God, we thank you for this, this incredible word that you've given us that gives us the evidence gives us the, 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 the words and, and, uh, and the, the signs that we can trust to know that you are who you are. And God, I just pray for all of those people that are watching, that are doubting, that are questioning, that through this they will know the truth and they will know the proof that you are who you say you are and that they can trust you. And God, we are praying for life change for this series. We thank you for all you do, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.